Hello and welcome to today's Essex Police Department podcast on emergency planning. This will be part two, which I will also include a discussion on civilian response to active threat. My name is Peter Silva. I am the police chief and the harbor master for the town of Essex. And we are continuing a program which I developed, which is called the CORI program, which is spelled K-O-R-I. And it is a simple acronym for keeping our residents informed. So sharing information really has been a, a, in the forefront of what we're trying to do to keep our residents and listeners, keep them informed as far as what we're doing and things that would interest them in their daily lives. So I've picked several important topics for the Corey program, including this one today, so we can inform and educate, again, not only the residents, but listeners who tune into the podcast as well. So today in the studio, I have a very special guest who I have had the privilege of not only knowing for well, for many, many years, but somebody who I've had the distinct privilege of working with during my law enforcement career, also for countless years. So joining me in the studio as my guest is the former Wenham Police Chief and now the Police Captain and University Emergency Manager at Suffolk University in Boston. Chief Walsh, Chief Ken Walsh, started in public safety as a civilian dispatcher for the Danvers Police Department. That was back in 1985. And after that, he then became an auxiliary officer in Wenham in 1986. He became a reserve officer in 1987, in which he continued his successful quest in policing, and he became a full-time Wenham police officer in 1988. Ken was promoted to sergeant in 1995 and then deputy chief in 2004, which after that he served the highest honor in the, as the Wenham chief from 2005 to 2012, at which time he retired from municipal service. So as chief of police, he also served as the emergency management director. In addition, what many people probably don't realize among Chief Walsh's many talents is that he's a very skilled guitarist and a singer in the North Shore band-based Uncharted Waters band. So that could possibly be its own podcast that we could do for community policing, Ken, somewhere down the road. But uh, Chief Walsh, good afternoon, and I'd like to give you a warm welcome today. And personally, thank you for being part of today's very important discussion on emergency management and civilian response to an active threat here at 1623 Studios located in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Also, a bit of uh, trivia, which, as you know, Ken, I had started my law enforcement career in the town of Wenham back in 1985. So, Chief Walsh, welcome and thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, Chief. My pleasure. Uh, yes, we go back uh, 30 plus years. Wow, long time. Amazing, amazing. Well, this is great that you're here today. So why don't we get started, um, Ken? So we had recorded a segment here on emergency planning. That was back in September of 2018. And at that time, I had the Essex Fire Chief, Daniel Doucette, and our Board of Health Director, Aaron Kirshner. And it was kind of a compelling discussion that we had going on, and a lot of information was flowing. So I wanted to continue that conversation, particularly on emergency management, because it's paramount, really, with regards to everything that we do in law enforcement. So I know that you have served as a municipal emergency management director as the police chief, and now, of course, you serve in that role in the private sector at Suffolk University. So could we start the discussion maybe just by asking you if you would give us a brief history on emergency management, probably in your own words. Yeah, so uh, emergency management really started way back, uh, it goes far as back as 
1803 in a town in New Hampshire that uh, experienced a large fire uh, in which uh, the federal government uh, offered assistance to that town uh, so they could recover. Um, and that's what really emergency management's all about, is uh, responding to an emergency, um, in handling the emergency, and then uh, recovering from that emergency as well. So it started back then, uh, and then as the years went on, you saw during the Cold War years, 1950s, uh, it became more of the civil defense. You, you, you heard a lot about the Civil sure. Defense Act, um, and you, most communities had a civil defense director for a number of years. And we also saw a number of smaller towns that had auxiliary police uh, that fell under civil defense, under the Civil Defense Act in Massachusetts. Um, but after 9-11, 9-11 changed a lot of things. And in 2002, um, President Bush signed the Homeland Security Act. Uh, and at that, at that point there, a lot changed as far as emergency management went. Um, MEMA and FEMA kind of changed um, how they went about business. And you saw a lot of uh, cities and towns change uh, to get, uh, you know, in the 90s, all hazard planning had begun, but they really ramped it up after 9-11. Uh, and now you see uh, municipal, go- municipal governments on a local um, point of view have a robust emergency management team and also at the uh, private sector uh, as well as uh, private institutions like colleges which have uh, incident, uh, the incident command system and an incident support team, uh, really just more of an organized manner ever since uh, 9-11 happened. Yeah, so much has really changed, particularly in our industry since 9-11. And, um, you know, the, the planning part of everything that we do, when you, come, when you think of it, it's really essential in having a smooth operation. It's, there's so many things to do, and I do truly believe in muscle memory. You do have to practice these things. You do have to have an organized plan in place. So um, I think you couldn't think that this was a better discussion, certainly, to talk about emergency management. Now, I heard you mention incident command. So we have had a host of training in ICS, but for the benefits of the listeners, would you mind discussing what exactly the incident command system is? Yes. Uh, So the incident command system is really a standardized approach to command, control, and coordination of emergency response. Uh, It provides for a common hierarchy within uh, with each responders and multiple agencies so they can all be effective and work together. Uh, You see fire departments are really good with this and actually use this incident command system on every call for service, no matter the size of the incident. So in other words, if you had a medical emergency, Uh, you will hear the fire department sign off saying um, engine one's on scene in command. Uh, So when the next responder approaches, they give updated information. And if that becomes becomes a larger scene, um, they can go into incident command very easily. Uh, So they use um, even the basic calls for service that that we go on every day. Uh, They practice it at every every call for service. They're always utilizing the system, uh, which makes them more proficient when a large-scale incident occurs. Uh, A number of years ago, I remember, um, I think it might have been 2006, when Danvers had uh, an explosion in the the Danvers Port area Mm -hmm. where you saw the incident command system had to go into place right away. And that's just an example of how things can change real quick. So in other words, um, you know, we all hope that these type of incidents don't happen, but unfortunately they do happen. If you and your community 
had a situation where uh, somebody heard an explosion, you know, say it came in as, I'm not sure if it's fireworks, I'm not sure what that is, and then you get, get on scene and you find out um, that it's a gas explosion or something like that, something that we just saw in the Merrimack Valley area in a yes. very large uh, scale. Um, these incidents can change real quick. So what ends up happening is you have to go into a mode where you become, say, you know, if there's the town of Essex, say there's two or three cruisers on uh, on patrol in town, now you have to get the entire department involved. You have to open up an incident command uh, center, uh, an EOC, so to speak, emergency operations center, and you have to run uh, the emergency operations center uh, from also from the incident, but also at the station. So you really have to have two EOCs going at once. So in other words, if you're at a gas explosion, like Danvers was in the, the Danvers Port area, um, they had an EOC at the town hall, and they also had the police department and the fire department had an incident command set up uh, near the scene. Uh, you don't want to be too close to the scene for obvious reasons, uh, for dangerous uh, risk and things like that. That was another thing that was learned from 9-11 when they had the incident um, command center right underneath where they were, uh, where the building was was crumbling. So you don't want to have that type of incident. But it just, it, it the incident, um, incident command system goes into a mode and it makes for everything for a smooth transition for when outside responders, not just your own now, outside responders respond to you to assist and then there's clear lines of communication and everything is set up. Uh, and like you had said at the beginning, it's, it's important muscle memory. It's important to practice these. Uh, and that's why the fire departments are so good across the nation uh, at this. Um, it really provides for a clear line of communication. And there's also no question who was in charge of the scene. Um, that's right. Rank may not matter during an incident. And it's based on the first ones at scene, on the scene because they know what's going on because they're the first ones there. That's a great point. And, you know, from what I understand, and I was not on scene for the, um, the most recent incident in the uh, Merrimack Valley area up in, Lawrence, up in Lawrence, uh, my understanding from two of our officers that went up there, it was very organized. And again, as you say, t- plenty of resources. There, there has to be a, a formality of people coming in and, and placing the, the um, resources out in different locations throughout a huge area. So, but so for the sake of discussion, police officers essentially could be the incident commander initially and then pass off to the fire department when appropriate, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I, think, I think most people think of police officers as just handling crimes when they don't think about the, the larger aspect that we're handling public safety incidents and not just law enforcement incidents and crimes. That's right. And, you know, when I think about our own police and fire, how we work together, and you think back about quote, how we used to do things. And back then, it, it's it, some years back, it seemed to be not um, as refined as this um, ICS system now. You would hear so many voices on the radio. And, and now, if you listen on your scanner or you listen on the radio, you hear a very defined C1 is establishing incident command. And mm-hmm. boom, it is everything goes through that. Because you really need, when things get chaotic, as, as you can imagine, and you spoke about uh, Danvers and, and also about the, the Merrimack Valley area incident that they had up there. I mean, boy, there's a lot on everybody's plate at that point. So you, you need some formality to it. So um, can, can you explain the differences of municipal emergency management compared to the private sector? I, th- I think you could speak pretty well on both of those. Yes. Yeah, so uh, 
it's quite different. Uh, a, a lot of what we do in the private sector now um, is a lot of the same in emergency management, there's a, but there's also a lot that's different. Um, and I can explain this uh, in a more uh, in-depth here. So in the municipal world, emergency management involves emergency planning and being ready as a community to plan, respond, and recover from an emergency. And we do that in the private sector. Uh, but the private sector incidents uh, also may include international global security. And that was one piece uh, when I took on this role in the private sector that I didn't realize how big of a piece that is. Um, you know, in uh, the private sector, say you work for um, a large financial institution, um, you know, the PRU or, or something like that, where you have many people that are employed that are traveling uh, globally, um, security, the security director or the emergency management director or the risk manager, a lot of places have the risk manager do it, um, will uh, provide for global security and actually make sure um, that your travelers are safe. And that's something that, um, that I wasn't aware of how in-depth uh, that can be. Now, you go on to the university setting, the college setting, um, we do that, but we also have students to worry about. Now, on average, we have about 600 people. When you, when you add up, on average, Suffolk University has about 600 students, faculty and staff, um, that travel abroad. Um, now, students, of course, are studying abroad, but the faculty and staff are also, you might have the admissions office. They might be going to different countries to try to get um, more people to come to the university. You may have um, faculty members that are going abroad to study a certain um, thing that they teach in their classes, but also it's the, the students that are studying abroad and they're all over the world. I mean, um, some of these institutions, you, know, you take a larger institution, larger than us, like Northeastern, um, they actually have divisions of people that just do global security, uh, for, or MIT, for example, um, that, that they hire people just to do the global security that's piece amazing. of their university. Mm. Um, so that's one thing at Suffolk University is very different. Um, and that's something that, I, that I've taken on. I will tell you, um, it's something totally different than I've ever done in my career. It's, uh, there's, there's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, you know, you, you're working with many different countries. You're working with global providers. Um, and we track our employees uh, and our students that are studying abroad. Um, so we make sure that everybody is safe. And the way I describe it to the students when I give my pre-departure trainings to the students is basically I could be home at night um, or I could be practicing with the band, and um, I get a call on my phone saying, um, God forbid there's an earthquake in another country or there's a terrorist attack um, in another country. And then I go on my computer and I find out who I have for students and faculty and staff uh, based on the computer system that we have from our global provider. And then we act upon that and make sure we reach out to them uh, and we make sure that they're safe. Now, there are certain uh, protocols that we follow uh, to make sure that if they needed to get out of that situation, we work with our global provider to, to make sure that they can. Um, if it's uh, a terrorism incident, of course, that you'd see something like that happen where we make decisions on whether they should come back to the states or not. 
Um, but we also work with our global provider for medical reasons as well. But one thing that I, I think a lot of people don't understand is uh, if you get ill while you're abroad and you end up in a country and you don't speak that language, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> and you're, uh, you know, a doctor's over you while you're laying on the gurney there and he's, you don't understand what he's telling you. That's and, a problem. Yeah, so the global provider really assists with that. Um, emergency management locally, if we have it's 16 degrees out and we have some pipes break in a res hall and we have 400 students that we have to move in the middle of the night, that's a big operation. Sure it is. Um, whether we get a hold of their parents so they can have them go home or we put them up at hotels and things like that. So these are all the different things um, that we handle in the private sector that, to be honest with you, when I was in the municipal side of things, I didn't realize all that went on in the private sector with emergency management. It's, it's really eye-opening. That's amazing. I got to tell you. Well, I've heard you mention global providers several times. So to me, this is fascinating. But perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about global providers. Some of your listeners might be saying to themselves right now, why are we talking about global? This is the Essex. Sure. This is the Essex Police Department. Why are we talking about global security? Well, the reason why I wanted to bring it up and what, the reason why I think it's important is there's a lot of folks out there that are going to be sending their, their kids off to college, um, their young adults off to college, or universities and whatnot. And if they're going to be studying abroad, I will tell you, ask that university or college whether they have a global provider. Okay. Uh, it is very, very important uh, that they have a global provider to help with the university. Many colleges and universities do not have a global provider, and they'll just have the study abroad group um, at that college uh, handle situations. But I will tell you that I, I think it's essential, uh, and the reason is this, and let me just tell you what a global provider does. It's a contracted company that works for the private institution or for the university, and they provide international service to employees and students. They give international security updates via an app. So we have an app. Uh, through our global provider that is available to all of our students and all to our faculty and staff that are studying abroad or working abroad. And they give updates, real-life security updates. And I'll give you an example of something that happened to me. Um, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, the university sent me off to Ma the Madrid campus. We have a campus in Madrid and also to Portugal. So while I was in Portugal walking down the street, I was with the risk manager, we came into a, a large demonstration. Now here we were in a, you know, a country that we're not familiar with. Uh, a large demonstration, there was a lot going on. It appeared there was a lot of upset people. And our global provider was able to tell us in real time what was happening at that incident. So basically I picked up my smartphone and looked at what was happening and they were able to tell me in real time what was happening during that incident. So that's the one thing that it, it, it gives you updates like that. Um, they also provide assistance during a medical situation, like I mentioned before. So if you're in a hospital and you need some kind of, um, say you need what I told you before about the doctor, you, you know, language interpreter services, they offer interpreter services as well. Um, and they'll even offer legal advice if someone should get in trouble overseas, uh, which unfortunately can happen. I mean, you look at uh, a couple of years ago, there was a student from Boston University that took down a poster 
And oh, that's right. I, and that. it was, was, I don't remember what country it was. It France, or I don't remember what country it was. But anyway, wherever he was, it was illegal for him to do that. And then he ended up going to jail for, for, for a period of time. I, I, don't, I don't really know what the outcome was with that. But that just goes to show you that what is legal or may not, you may not get charged with in the United States may not be the situation when you're traveling abroad. Um, so they do provide legal assistance as well uh, if, if, that, if that should happen. Um, if you're hospitalized for seven or more days, the global provider will also um, have your parents or anybody you want, even a friend, come out and see you. Uh, they'll fly them to see you at that location if it's something that it requires hospitalization for seven or more days. So it's very, very important that uh, they utilize the global provider. And again, um, if you're looking at colleges, ask that question. It's, yeah, it's imperative. That's an excellent point, particularly with uh, all the kids going to school and, as you say, many students traveling abroad and, and teachers alike as well. So, um, you know, kudos to to Suffolk for all the great things that they're doing in this. I mean, this is great information here. Um, so, Ken, we greatly miss you, you know, as in your chief capacity on the North Shore. Can we talk about how transitioning from the municipal world into where you are now in the private sector, how that is going? And Yeah, so, you know, in some ways, Chief, it was it was easy because of many, many of the things that how we do business, uh, especially in a, in a small town policing. Small town policing in college policing or university policing is much the same. Um, it's very community, community-based. It's very service-based. So in that way, uh, it, it came quite easy uh, to, to learn that, that part of the policing. Um, you know, in the last few, few years, community um, campus policing has come a long way. Um, unfortunately, due to tragic events that, that go on uh, mm-hmm. all around the world, um, but campus policing really has come a long way. The professionalism of camp- campus policing has come a long way. Um, in, the, in the private sector, the university realm, there's a great deal that goes on behind the scenes that people don't, that they're not aware of. Um, the, you know, there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of employees that work together. Uh, there's never any downtime in my position. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Uh, the nice part is you have so many different services at your disposal that you don't have in a municipal policing structure, uh, such as full-time counselors that can assist if a student is in a crisis. And I bring this up every time I do a, I do a talk with our uh, counselor, the director of counseling at our university. I think about the many times that, unfortunately, in small-town policing, and this is, and this is something, in small-town policing, people don't realize that we that we do on uh, an, uh, kind of a frequent basis, unfortunately, is that we respond to somebody that's in crisis. So if um, somebody is at their house and there's suicidal ideations going on in the family structure or something like that, we respond, say there's one or two police officers that respond. If it's during the day, the chief might go, or the sergeant might go, and basically, we're in charge of that scene, and if that person is home alone, and I, I know you've experienced this in your career, Chief, because I know I did uh, numerous times, where you have to get a family member uh, to get the doctor involved, to get that person help, and unfortunately sometimes that can involve a Section 12, 
um, to get the people the, the, the help that they need in a medical facility. Well, in a university structure, if that should happen, and unfortunately that does happen with students, we have the counseling center right with us and we can call upon them. And I would, I, I say this all the time, I would have given anything um, when I was the chief in Wenham, when I was you know, at a certain residence dealing with a situation to have a counselor at my disposal. There are, there are some large police departments that have counselors, um, social workers that actually ride with the police officers for that very reason, is that they respond with them to the call for service so they can be there right there uh, to assist as, it, as it's happening. Um, you know, the other thing that's, that's different is, you know, in the policing profession, you answer to one person. Like in a small town like yours, you, mm-hmm. I'm sure you answer to the town administrator. Uh, in a lot, if you're in Salem or something like that, you're going to answer to the mayor. Um, but in the university structure, um, you answer to one person as well. Um, I mean, I'm, there's two captains on my police department, and I answer to my chief. And my chief answers to somebody uh, directly, the special assistant to the president. Uh, and that's uh, one person that the police department answers to. But there are many others that depend on us for answers and to assist them in dealing with issues on a, on a regular basis. Uh, it's quite common for us to be dealing uh, with them. It might even be an employee issue or whatever, um, and they just need advice or they need us to stand by if there's a problem with an employee and things like that. So there's a lot that goes on um, in, in the uh, in the um, university setting or in the private sector uh, that people don't realize. There are a lot more um, committees as well. Uh, There's so many committee meetings. (laughs) You think you have a lot of committee meetings. I thought I had a lot of committee meetings in Wenema until I went into the university. Well, that's that's interesting. You know, unfortunately, today's threats, as we all know, aren't necessarily just in the schools. You know, they've been in public places and other places where the general public frequent um, I think it's fair to say that you could use some of the same tactics or this, the same techniques that are taught to protect the children and, you know, potentially greatly increase the chances of anyone's survival. Can you tell us about maybe some civilian response to active threat training? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that we at Suffolk have been very proactive in is um, we do a civilian response training to a, to, to a threat or active shooter uh, incident. Uh, response training, not only to our faculty and staff, but also uh, to our students. And, you know, we started out doing it uh, in group, small groups. So if somebody uh, asked for the training, we would provide it. But now we're uh, actually um, in the second half after the uh, Christmas break, we're going to be offering up open forums on this subject as well. So unfortunately, active shooter situations have become a lot more common, as we know. Uh, we teach the run-hide-fight method. Uh, there are many different versions out there that are basically, they teach the same method, whether it's sure. run-hide-fight, avoid, deny, defend, or the ALICE program. You use ALICE, the ALICE yes, program. Yes, we do. We right? use ALICE. So they're all, they're all about the same. Um, we decided to go with run-hide-fight um, because Homeland Security um, said that um, it kind of kind of dovetailed with Homeland Security. That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll stay with run, hide, fight. We are looking at other other things um, down the road. But basically the run, hide, fight, and what it means is um, that you have an escape route and that you plan in mind, uh, have a plan in mind. So I always, when I'm teaching these classes, always tell the story of 
when we went to the police academy, how we were taught that when you're riding around in this downtime in the cruiser, you think about the what ifs. Sure. If I'm driving down, you know, Main Street in, in Essex, what if sh- something should happen at a certain address? How would I approach it and how would I handle the situation? The normal civilian person out there is not wired like that. Mm. And unfortunately, we have to start teaching them to be wired like that. That's a great point. You know, um, so that's what I tell. I tell everybody, look, don't walk around um, in a paranoid state, but walk around in a heightened state. Um, Situational awareness. Be aware of your surroundings. Um, When I teach the class, I always talk about when I go to a restaurant now, police officers are kind of known for this, right? (laughs) Where do we sit, chief? Where do you sit when you go to a restaurant? I want my back to the wall. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, that's one of the things that I talk about um, during during when I do these trainings. So um, you want to have an escape route in mind, plan plan in mind. This everybody when when I teach these classes, the first thing they they always talk about before I even begin is how they wish their user space of where they work. um, You know, there should be a, a. I wish they could focus on that so I can be safe where I work. That's exactly why we teach Run, Hide, Fight, or you might do the Alice program or the other ones, is that this can be used anywhere. You look at where active shooter situations are occurring. The number one place is actually your place of employment. They're also happening in schools. They're happening in movie theaters. They're happening in bars. They're happening in restaurants. You're seeing this, you're seeing it at at Microsoft in an open uh, area outside in an open area, so they're happening at all different uh, places like that. But so you really want to care. You want you want to think about your situational awareness. Um, you want to leave your your belongings behind. Um, if you have a situation and you know you you get an alert message saying that there's an active shooter or somebody says there's an active shooter at a um, wherever location that you're you're at, you don't want to say, oh, I got to go back in. I got to get my computer. No. You got to leave. That's right. As soon as you can, uh, you can always, you know, the computer is or your handbag is. That's going to become a crime scene, and everything's going to be locked down anyway. So, um, and you want to keep your hands visible uh, when you run as well. Uh, and we'll, and we'll get into that as far as police response as well. Uh, the second thing, the hide part. Uh, you want to hide in an area that's outside of the shooter's view. You want to block the entry to the hiding place and lock the doors. So that is the shelter in place uh, piece. There is, it used to be the standard operating procedure, say for schools. Okay, if there's an active shooter, what do you do? You go into lockdown. You go to shelter in place. People are confused by that. Um, That is no longer, as of 2013, the standard procedure to go into shelter in place. And you're seeing it around the country where people are still just doing shelter in place and doing nothing else. And that basically leaves you as somebody, if somebody comes in uh, and you're just locked in a room and you don't take any action, it kind of leaves you out there um, as a potential victim. So what they're teaching now is this run, hide, fight method. Think of it this way. The hide piece is your shelter in place. So when you're hiding, if you have to hide, say, say you're at a situation and the shooter is just outside your doorway 
and you're in a classroom, and I'm just using this as an example, you want to lock that class, classroom down, you want to block the doors, you want to draw the shades, you don't want the person to see you, and if there's multiple people in that room, you want to work as a team, and you want to keep moving as well. Um, now, you know this, being a police officer, um, that a moving target is a lot harder sure. to hit yes, than somebody that's sitting still. So uh, you want to move constantly. You also want to silence your cell phone. So again, I want an emphasis on this, that shelter in place is not the overall response, but it is the hide piece. Now, if the shooter is outside and you're inside, then they might have your shelter in place. But when you shelter in place, you're going to be taking orders from authorities of what to do next, um, usually via a text message or alerting system of whatever school you have and things like that. Now, the last piece is fight. And this is a last resort, and only when life is imminent, uh, there's an imminent danger to your life. Um, and you want to attempt to uh, incapacitate the shooter to stop that, that person. Um, you want to act with physical aggression and throw items at the attacker as well. Now, when I teach this, I watch people sometimes kind of shaking their head like, I'm not going to fight this individual. Well, if it's a matter of life and death, are you going to sit there and just hide and hope he doesn't get you, or are you going to fight back? Uh, and I talked about moving, you know, keep moving. You want to keep moving, but you also want to throw objects. Um, and what we do with, with, the, with the run, hide, fight, we have a classroom piece, which lasts about an hour. And then we spend about a half an hour on showing people if you throw objects at a person, if you move, it's much harder for them. Yeah, it's a distraction. To take, to, yeah, to, sure. take, you know, to take action against you. So um, that's basically the piece on what run, hide, fight means okay. and what we do with um, active shooter training. You know, it's interesting, but you brought up a really interesting point, and, and it really resonates with me when you, when you had said, who, are, who, who, who cares about your computer? Leave your pocketbook behind, that type of thing. Because you see so many times where there's a dangerous event happening, there's some emergency, and what do people do? They grab their phone, and they're turning their cell phone on. They're, mm -hmm. they're recording this. It's like, get out of there as quickly as you can. You've touched upon all those things. Keep moving. Don't stop. Of course, unless you have to shelter in place. Um, and, you know, this is also interesting because I think you touched on this too because if I recall, when Columbine uh, occurred, sheltering place was – that was really essentially the model to follow. But certainly, like anything else, we adapt, we overcome. You know, we learn to uh, – really, we, we've learned valuable lessons from other experience or even actions that we've, we've taken – so we also make changes in the way that we respond to certain calls and, and actions that we take. So let's talk about why these methods, you know, why them? Um, what happened to shelter in place? I think you've talked about how things have changed. Well, in Columbine, if you, if you remember back in 1999 when Columbine happened, you know, what did we do? We, we responded as police and not we, but the police department out there at Columbine. And they respond to that that location and what did they do they back then we all did this we wait for SWAT to, we used to wait for SWAT to arrive so we would basically cordon off the area surround the school and then wait for SWAT to arrive so within 45 minutes a lot can happen in that time frame a lot of tragedy can happen in that in that time frame and that's exactly what happened in, in Columbine 
fast forward to Virginia Tech, when Virginia Tech happened, they said, oh, you know, we need to start going in. Police need to start going in, in groups, um, you know, the diamond form, the groups of four, um, getting people um, in there quicker. Uh, so we no longer went with the 45-minute wait for the SWAT. We went right That's in right. with the diamond form. Um, but we were also seeing that before we even arrive, you know, the average, the average time uh, is about three minutes response time for police, which is, which is a pretty good response time. But think of how long, if you're under those circumstances, three minutes can be. Well, a long time. When, when an active Forever. Shooter, shooter is happening. Sure. So they started to look at, and, you know, the FBI did studies, Mass State Police did studies, a lot of people did these, and found that um, if, the sh- if the killings are happening before we're even on scene, that we need to develop programs um, for civilians to stop these individuals uh, before too much happens. And that's when we started to see the run-hide fights, sure. the ALICE programs, uh, Void, Deny, Defense, um, that, that came out. And it, it's there is, I mean, our show isn't long enough for the stories, but there's a lot of success stories of people that have stopped active shooter situations before the police were even on scene. That's right. There's, there's a lot of them. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this. One of the most frequently asked questions to me that I hear is, you know, does the active shooter fit a certain profile? You know, what are your thoughts on this? Well, no, they don't. There's no active profile or certain profile that they fit. Um, although they are mostly men, uh, but they don't fit a certain race pattern or an ethnic profile. Um, but what you can look for is signs and behaviors. In almost all active shooter situations, there were signs beforehand, such as a behavior or comment made. Uh, if you see or hear something, you, you need to say something, and that, that's very important. Um, in almost all of the cases, people heard somebody say something, knew that the person had the signs and symptoms of you know, making a comment like, I'm sick and tired of this place, I'm going to do something about it, and making um, threatening remarks and things like that. And what are people, the, the normal response to some people is to kind of downplay it. Oh, what are the odds that, you know, this individual will ever do anything? I don't think, That's right. you know, they, they think of it that way. And he, he or she might not have a history of violence yet, um, but you need to pay attention to these comments over the course of time. And you hear these stories all the time after an active shooter event that, oh, yes, we heard him say this or we heard him say that. Now, there are occasions where um, that they didn't hear anything, but most of the time they do hear yeah. somebody say something. There, there was a sign beforehand. You know, I, I know um, that I mentioned it in one of my earlier podcasts, but it is so important to remind the listeners that people should always report things as early as possible. You know, don't wait. Think of it as, you know, time is of the essence because it may save somebody's life or even your own. It reminds me of, um, you know, that truth is stranger than fiction, but we had a report a number of years ago where there was a possible housebreak. Now, the homeowner heard somebody, she thought that she heard somebody in her home. This was early in the morning when she was getting ready for work, went to work, came home, and then reported it. I mean, I, I can't make this stuff up, but... It just goes to show you that when we get there, uh, whether it's somebody breaking into your home or an incident that we're one of our 
you know, what we're talking about at today's discussion. Early reporting is just so paramount. You really need to, I'm trying to emphasize to any listener, you see something, get on the phone. You see something, tell somebody right away. Don't delay. And that is so important. So, you know, we watch the news, we watch the news, we read the newspapers. Many of us are following local and national news and information and so forth. And so many people have a voracious appetite in today's world and social media. But what's the number one place, I think you touched on this, where, you know, active shooter situations occur? Well, let me, can I just back up for one minute? Sure. On, on, based on what you were talking about earlier. So one of the things that we do during our training is I give kind of a, an example of a call for service of an active shooter event. Now, I mentioned that three minutes is the um, average response time for police. But what I do is when I'm in the classroom is I will demonstrate, okay, the citizen calls and, you know, say they're in a room and they find out there's an active shooter outside their location. What do they do now? They get on their cell phone. Let's just say for the sake of argument, they get on, they get on their cell phone and what's happening? They're shaking. They can, they can, there's so much going on. There's so much emotion. There's so much fear that they're shaking. Um, it takes time for them to dial that number. So they dial the number. They get the dispatcher. The dispatcher asks them a series of questions. What's your location? Um, is there more than one shooter? Uh, where are you exactly located within the facility? Where should the police um, respond to? Can you stay on the line? All of these type of things, and there's many questions that might be going on. Now, a good dispatcher, while they're asking these questions, is also going to get units en route. So while the units are en route, they're going to be, you know, say, car four. Car four, um, I need an update. So they're going to be needing to update the officers. All of these things take time. Uh, And then when the officer gets to the location, guess what? That officer might not know the inside layout of that building. And they're going to need assistance with that. Think of the time element from the call, the time the call goes out, from from the the caller, Mm -hmm. makes the call to the dispatcher. Dispatcher dispatches the cars. Now there's going to be chaos on the the radio somewhat. Uh, Hopefully with the ICS system that will be reduced somewhat. But that's all going to involve a, a lot that goes into that. So there's a time element that people don't think about, and that's something that you should that they should be considering as well. Um, in regards to um, that question, yes, the businesses are the number one. We t- we touched upon that right. earlier, uh, followed by schools. Um, but again, um, they can they can happen um, anywhere. Um, any, you know, like we already mentioned that you even seeing, you know, churches being affected. Now. Sure. You know, this is worthy once again of reminding listeners about early reporting and quick action. If you think that something terribly wrong is happening while you're present or close by, you know, take some action. I try to tell people, please take some action and do it quickly. It may be running, it may be dialing 911 or warning other people to get out. So, for example, if you hear what you think hypothetically our firecrackers in a school or a movie theater or maybe a place of employment, you know, trust your education, your experience, and really your basic reasoning. Most times it doesn't fit. You know, you're hearing firecrackers, firecrackers in the school. I, I don't understand who would do, you know, listen to what your mind is telling you. Don't let it play tricks on you and, and dismiss it. Get moving at once, really, and don't delay. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from, um, 
former President Theodore Roosevelt who said, you know, the, the best thing that you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing that you can do is nothing. That's profound. Well said. Get going. Well said. I, yeah, really well said. And I just, it really resonates with me. Um, but, you know, parents and members of the public often ask this question as well. You know, what is the average police response time to an active shooter event? And what can people expect, you know, when the police arrive? So we talked about the three minute is the, uh, the response time. But uh, what people can expect is basically what we talked about earlier is the fact that you might have SWAT members going in. You may have uniform, regular uniform patrol officers going in, the officers that you see day in, day out that are in, they're in the cruisers. You may have detectives in plain clothes that are going in. And these officers might be going into the building by themselves. And that's the way we're being trained now is um, if there's one officer available, uh, that officer's going in to stop the threat. Uh, so you could see um, you know, that one officer come in, or you could see a multitude, multitude of officers, especially as the event unfolds, you're definitely going to see a multitude of officers. Um, but the one thing that you want to want to do is, you, and you got to consider is, these officers that are responding and, and entering these dwellings or these buildings, they're not there to assist you. And that might sound strange. They're not there to assist you medically. They're not there to assist you emotionally. They're there, the first I'm talking about the first officer on scene or the, the first officers on scene are there to stop the threat first. Sure. So what you need to do is you, and I know this might sound a little strange to say, but you need to remain calm. Uh, you need to put your hands above your head, keep your, keep your hands open, and walk out the building and do what they say uh, as the initial officers are, are coming in. Now, after that, they do have follow-up teams that'll come in and assist uh, people medically and, and do um, a whole host of helping, um, you know, as the scene unfolds. The other thing is once you leave that building, do not leave the scene. It's imperative that you stay there and listen to where the officers, what the officers are telling you. They will have a staging area that will have you go to that staging area so they can interview everybody and make sure that you get everything that you need. Um, you know, during these tragic events, there's a lot, there's a lot that's going on. There's family members, you know, cell phones are really active. Um, parents are calling, um, people, you know, victims, families, or people that are in the building, their families, even if you're not injured, they're calling to want to know what's going on and things like that. Don't get the tunnel vision and leave. It's very important. You do what the police say and go to that staging area so they can interview you. Yeah. Well put. And assist you. Sure. Well, we certainly covered a lot of ground during today's podcast. Ken, I want to thank you very much. It was a lot of great information for the listeners. This is an important topic, and hopefully nobody will ever need this. Um, but, you know, the reality is it's, um, get, it's, it's an exercise to get your mind thinking about the, these types of incidents and what you would do if you're faced in a situation like we've discussed. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Just that I just want to really, they need to be trained in civilian response to an active threat. And you can get that through some of your local police departments, whether it's the ALICE program uh, or through private means. Uh, There's people out there that teach these type of trainings. Um, Again, these methods can be used anywhere, no matter where you are in in your situations. These these situations can happen anywhere. 
beware of your surroundings. Uh, don't li- like I said earlier, don't live your life in a panic mode, but have a heightened awareness uh, to your surroundings. Unfortunately, that's the way we need to be in this day and age. Sure. But I want to thank you, Chief. And I want to thank the uh, Essex Police Department and thank the citizens of Essex. Uh, and just to say, uh, stay safe and enjoy the holiday season. That's fantastic. And back at you on behalf of myself, the town. And, um, you know, Ken, I want to thank you sincerely for you participating in today's podcast and for bringing really a wealth of information to the table for our listeners. We're greatly appreciated for this information that you've shared. And I also want to take this opportunity to personally thank supervising producer Becky Tober here at 1623 Studios, as well as her entire staff at uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, for helping make this podcast possible and for providing really such fantastic media source for us to put this information out to the listeners. So in closing, I'd like to say once again, that is my hope that the listeners of this podcast have enjoyed the Corey program, which again stands for keeping our residents informed. And please remember, do not delay if you or somebody you know is in an emergency situation. Be sure to dial 911 immediately. I am Chief Peter Silver of the Essex Police Department. Thank you for listening to our podcast and be safe. 